If you would grab your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to wrap up today what has been a really uh, fascinating and important series on forgiveness, uh, what we call a practice series at York Alliance. So if you didn't grab one of these yet, there are these booklets in the back. There's still a handful of them left. They're called our practice guidebooks. So this is a different kind of series where we specifically press into the idea of living the truth of the scriptures. Um, the Apostle James uh, wrote, uh, as, he, uh, as he was writing his letter, James wrote that we need to be not just hearers of the words, but doers of the word. And so we want to be people who don't just know the way of Jesus, but we also practice the way of Jesus. And so we do that through these practice series several times a year where we take a specific discipline from the life of Jesus and we talk about what it looks like for us to live that way. And so forgiveness has been part of that journey. I know we're at the end of the series, but if you found nothing else in the series, you've probably found this is not a uh, five-step finish it this afternoon kind of process. If you have real areas of unforgiveness and bitterness in your life, it takes time. And so grab one of these books and you can continue to journey through it and wrestle with it as God brings it to mind. Uh, you can continue to work through that. And so uh, even though we're finishing the series, I know the work is not finished. Let me just give you a brief recap and then we're going to dive into what we have today. So four weeks ago, we started by defining what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. And I'm not going to go back to all of that. You need to go back and, and listen to that if that is something that strikes you. But we did that because one of the reasons a lot of people don't forgive is because they have a misunderstanding of what forgiveness actually is. When we forgive, we are forgiving real and weighty offenses that have been committed against us, and we're not releasing them completely, we're turning people over to God. We're recognizing that the God, that the God we serve is a God of justice, and that he will be more perfectly able to enact justice than we ever can. And so when we release people, uh, one of the hesitations that we have is I don't feel like I can just let them go. We're, we're handing them to God and trusting the goodness and the justice of God. More on that if you go back to that first week. Brian Wade then came and talked to us about uh, transforming that hurt that lands on us. That when, uh, when, we're, when we're sinned against, when real offenses are committed against us, we have one of two choices and only two. There's only two options. One of them is to trust God to change that hurt into grace so that we can love other people in the midst of that hurt. But the other option and what will happen if we don't turn that over to God is we end up transmitting that hurt to other people. We're hurt, and so we hurt others. But Jesus invites us to come and to allow that, that hurt to be transformed. When Jesus, at the end of Matthew chapter 11, says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Put your burdens on me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What he's saying is, he can take those things that we were never intended to carry. We're not able to carry those things. We will transmit them to other people. But Jesus can and desires to transform them so that we would be people of grace in the world around us. We then stepped into a pathway of forgiveness. We used the model from Dr. Everett Worthington called REACH, the five-step process. I'm not going to go back through that. You'll have to go back and dig into that. It's also in the practice guide so you can see that. It's not a divine way as much as it's a way. We wanted to just give a pathway so that we could begin the process of moving towards forgiveness. And then uh, last week, Jonas did a great job with the idea of reconciliation and how to handle reconciliation. I'm not going to re-preach that because he took an hour the first time, so I don't want to do it. <laughs> I love you. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, he did, he did great. It was really, seriously, if you weren't here, you need to go back and listen to it. It was really, really uh, well done. 
and long, but really, really well done. And so uh, it's a great process of just a reminder that reconciliation is a two-party process. Forgiveness is a one-party process. We forgive. But in order to have reconciliation, we need the other party to be involved, which means not every uh, offense, not every sin will end in reconciliation. That's okay. That, that as we engage, we need to be forgiving people who are open to reconciliation. So today, what I'd really like us to do is dig into a pathway forward. We tend to think wrongly that forgiveness is a, a, a singular event at different times for different people with specific offenses. But really, forgiveness in the gospel is a way of living, We're to live a lifestyle of forgiveness. And so I want to look at the ways that Paul lays out. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, one verse, verse 32. We're going to look at three different ways that he lays out in the verse. We're going to look at the forgotten way. We're going to look at the forgiving way. And then the core of all of that is the only way, the way that Jesus lays out before us. So the forgotten way, the forgiving way, and the only way. As Paul writes to the Ephesians, he writes this beautiful six-chapter letter that is divided equally into two. So there's three chapters at the front end where Paul lays out a, a, a treatise on the gospel. It's fascinating because there are no active verbs in those first three chapters. Paul's just saying, this is true. Receive this. Hear this. This is what's true about you. Because of who Jesus is, because of the way God works, this is true about you. So he talks about the the choice of God of us, how he's chosen us. He talks about the grace that he's given to us individually, what that means for us as a people, what that means for us as a society within the larger world around us. He lays out all of these truths. And then the beginning of chapter 4, he says, because that's true— and the next three chapters lay out the response to that gospel. And, and Paul says, if you really believe what's true here, then you will live like this. There will be a response that flows from that. And uh, that takes us to the end of chapter 4, Paul having stated what the church will look like and what the people of God will look like because of the gospel. He's going to make this statement. One verse, so give your attention to the word of God. Ephesians 4, verse 32 be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come into your presence in the recognition that we can very quickly be people who hear and understand the word, but fail to do it. And so God, would you, in your grace, invite us into the lifestyle of forgiveness. Help us to be people who are marked by grace, who interact in the world around us in a way that points to you and to your goodness. Through all of the mediums this morning, through song, through exposition, through story, through testimony, through experience, would you speak to us by your spirit? God, would you direct and convict and guide our hearts? May my words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten. 
but may your words spoken by your spirit penetrate our hearts and find fertile soil. God, grow up in us good fruit, we pray. We trust you, Jesus. Your servants are listening. In your name, amen. Amen. Paul says, be kind to one another. I don't know about you, but kindness was one of those early lessons I learned. You remember that book out years and years ago, Everything I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? You guys remember that? I, I feel like kindness is one of those things. When I hear the word kindness, I'm like transported back to uh, Mrs. Bechtel's first grade classroom and having her teach us about kindness. And, and as I hear it, the first thing I think is, yeah, yeah, yeah kindness, like that's like what we're, that's the kind of stuff that we're supposed to learn when we're little. Everybody knows that. And then I look around at the world around us and I look around at the church, and I think, we should all go back to kindergarten, I think. <laughs> like, uh, we missed elementary school somehow. Kindness is the forgotten way of the people of God. This seems very simple. It seems uh, very elementary in a true sense of the word. But it's central to what it means to be the people of God. As a direct implication of the gospel, Paul says, you'll be kind to one another. Of course you will. Because kindness will naturally flow from you. Listen, uh, in, in verse 2, right after the, the hinge of the book of Ephesians, right after he says, therefore, this is what's true. In verse 2, listen to what he says. Uh, let me read it first in the ESV. It's, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let, let me read it in the New Living, because I think it, it pulls it out maybe a little bit better. He says this, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Do you hear that? Paul is not coming in with some Pollyanna view that everything is going to be perfect. He doesn't look at the church and say, well, clearly, once everybody's saved, everybody's going to be good. Make allowance for one another's faults. Recognize the fact you are going to sin against each other. Of course you are. Recognize the fact that there will be people who will hurt you. Make allowance for one another's faults with humility and gentleness because of your love. At the core, Paul is saying, when we recognize how we have been forgiven, we will be forgiving. Now you say, uh, wait, we're talking about kindness or are we talking about forgiveness? See, Paul weaves them together. He says, if you are truly a forgiving person, you will be kind. And real kindness that doesn't run out when you get fed up with that person is driven by forgiveness. They're, they're bound up together with one another. We, when we receive the forgiveness of God, will be kind. That's one of the reasons why confession is such a key part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When you come to our first Wednesday prayer gatherings, almost every month we have extended times of confession. When we uh, worship on Sunday morning, we regularly take time to confess our sins. Why? Because when we remember that we're broken, we're able to act in humility toward one another. Think of it the other way. When you're unkind to someone, what's going on in your heart? Almost always, it's because we believe that we're better than them in some way. We're morally superior. 
we're intellectually superior, we're, we're, we're nicer than they are, and so we, we get upset with them because they're mean to us. We, we don't put ourselves on an equal playing field. Confession reminds us how broken we are and how much we need Jesus. And, and the gospel will never say that this is something that you can generate on your own. This is always something that flows from our encounter with God. When we have a real encounter with Jesus, kindness is a byproduct. Francis Chan, in his book, Until Unity, makes this statement. Too many people call themselves Christian who have never experienced a deep connection with God. Now, that's a full sentence right there. Let me just read that again. Too many people call themselves Christian who have never experienced a deep connection with God. Because so few people have experienced his love, even fewer are able to share it. When love is shallow, all it takes is something as trivial as a disagreement to divide us. All it takes is something as trivial as a disagreement to divide us. Now you may say, well, what else is going to divide us? <laughs> like that's, that's, that's why we divide, because we disagree, right? So, so what, what's he saying? He's saying that people who have truly had an encounter with God, when I have been filled in by his spirit and I have received his grace... A simple disagreement is not going to be enough to separate us. We may disagree. Of course we'll disagree. But we learn to disagree in love and kindness and gentleness and humility so that we can stay united. Now, as I say that, I want to make a, a, a little caveat because we live in a kind of a wild world right now. Depending on the survey that you see, somewhere between 80 and 90% of Americans believe that people are inherently good. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, one of them being the Bible. But the, the reason that that's a problem in this instance is because if you and I are kind, but we never point to the source of our kindness, all we're doing is being better at being good than the other person is. Let me say it a different way. If you never point to the source of the kindness, it brings glory to you because you're a really good person. St. Francis of Assisi is attributed with the quote, I don't believe he said it, by the way, but he's attributed with the quote, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. How many people have heard that before? When necessary, use words. There's, there's significant problems with that. One of them is that the gospel always requires words. Jesus himself was the word made flesh. We need to be people of the word who speak the word. I get the heart of what's being said, which is to live in a way that shows the love of Jesus. But in 2021 in North America, we must be people who use words, who point to Jesus as the source of kindness, that we have been forgiven and we express that to the world around us. The forgotten way of the gospel is the simple thing we learned in kindergarten. Be kind to one another. Paul goes on to say, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. There should be a flow into us of forgiveness that flows back out of us. Now, sometimes that's going to be the big significant things that we've talked about, those, those weighty issues that maybe are, are landing on you. But let me just make, make a quick word to say, when we are living in the gospel, when we're living in the way of forgiveness— 
the vast majority of offenses don't require a big process. You don't have to like make a list. You don't have to like dig through stuff. You don't have to go through the Rolodex and like think at the end of the day, I'm sure somebody offended me today. Let me just think. Let me, I'm just, it's gotta be there. Let me just like, no, if you get to the end of the day and you're good, you're good. It's fine. Move on. It's beautiful. But there will be times, whether because of the size of the offense or just because of whatever was going on in the midst of that offense, that they stick. And at that point, there's a process of forgiveness that we have to walk through. If, if we can't just pass on from it, we must then engage it. Why? Because if we don't, the harm comes to us, not to them. So there's really wild things happening now. Um, Instead of me searching for Dallas Willard quotes, people are sending me Dallas Willard quotes. Is that awesome or what? It's great. So, um, so you know, I, I've been uh, often, I, the, the big joke is that you once a month need to get a good Dallas Willard quote. It just kind of helps the sermon move along. And this week I got an email that said, um, I don't know if you have your Dallas Willard quote for the week yet, but this is a really good one on forgiveness. I know the forgiveness series is wrapping up and I read it and I was like, that's really good. I'm going to put that in the sermon. So here you go. This is a Dallas Willard quote. The person who has the most power over your life is the person you have not forgiven. That person holds a part of you in bondage. To forgive is to regain yourself. Right? Like, man. When we fail to forgive, we hand that person we're unwilling to forgive power over our life. To live in the freedom that Jesus promises us, we need to be a forgiving people. Some of you may or may not know Kevin Hartnett, but you're about to meet him. Uh, Kevin is going to come and tell you a story about forgiveness. And while I could have summarized this story, I think it's so important for you to hear it from his mouth and to see it in real life. And so thanks for being willing to share with us, man. I had no idea that uh, Brian was going to use that Willard quote, but it's the perfect lead-in to my story. I'm going to start with, it was Friday, April 16th, 2010, and the time was 1.30 p.m. that day. I got a call from my boss's secretary at about noon telling me that I was to attend a meeting in my boss's office at 1.30. There was no re reason given to me for the meeting. I asked if she knew why I was to, to be there. She said no. She didn't tell me who was going to be there except my boss. So there was an ominous tone. Um, I immediately had an inkling what the reason was for the meeting. Why do I recall the details? Well, we tend to remember traumatic events rather vividly. At that meeting, I would be told that come June 30th, I would no longer have a job. My position was going to be dissolved, a fallout from 
the recession, the tail end of the recession, if you recall. Four years early, when I accepted that, four years earlier, when I had accepted that position, I knew there was a risk attached to it because the job was not a mandated one. But I was toward the tail end of my career and I was interested in a new challenge. And this position was a, a rather novel one and I was really, it was really appealing to me and I wanted to tackle it. The irony in all of this was I saw this coming for months. There were many signs. I saw the writing on the wall. That I won't go into what those signs were, but I wasn't worried because I figured that my employer was going to slide me over to another position for which I was certified, a position that they had been contracting out to a third party for, for several years, which was mandated. So I figured I was gonna be protected for a couple more years until I had reached full retirement. I figured I, I would have a job. Surprise. During the meeting, this never came up. And when I asked about it, this was not in their plan. Essentially, their plan was to kick me out to the curb. They were gonna to continue to save money by contracting out for that position. The good news that they shared with me was they were notifying me early so that I'd have ample time to look for other employment. They were telling me about 10 weeks prior to June 30th that I wasn't gonna have a job. Even though I knew that this was in the works for some time. Let's just say they were being less than truthful. Well, as it turned out, come July, I didn't have much choice but, but to be forced to take early, early retirement at a penalty so that I'd have in, I would have income for my family. It would take eight months for me to find another job. My angry, angry and bitter feelings toward the two main characters at that April 16th meeting continued to chew me up from the inside out. These feelings disturbed my sleep, my interpersonal relationships, my marriage, my mood, my physical health. I actually recall laying in bed nearly every night on my back thinking about that meeting before I allowed, to go to, allowed myself to go to sleep. It was almost ritualistic. Yet I was in denial most of the time. My wife noticed and tried to convince me, but no, I had control of things. Here was a guy with a master's plus 45 in psychology and education that allowed this craziness to persist for the better part of six years. Then finally, one Sunday, I opened my heart to God and the Holy Spirit. By the grace of God, one Sunday morning, I was present in church 
when the pastor at our previous church spoke about forgiveness. I listened with an open mind and heart. I could feel something moving me that morning. I knew I had an opportunity to end my pain and gain freedom. And I emphasize, end my pain and gain freedom. After that day, I spent about a week, maybe a week and a half, really thinking about my readiness to forgive and how I wanted to do so, and then I got to work. Since writing is my strength, I wrote each of the two persons a personal letter. And then I rewrote the letters. The purpose of the letters was twofold. In each letter, the first paragraph, I forgave each of them for what happened on that spring date in 2010. Then in the second paragraph, and more importantly, I asked each of them to forgive me for hanging on to those strong feelings of anger and bitterness for six years. I stamped and addressed envelopes and put the letters in the mail. At that moment, I felt an immediate sense of freedom and a new light shining on me where there had been darkness for six years. When I shared my actions with the members of my men's Bible study group, one of my friends asked me what I'd do if I had bumped into one of those two persons on the street. He, had, he was testing me. Without hesitation, I said I'd wrap my arms around him or her immediately and verbalize the contents of the letter. Another asked me, or said to me, don't expect necessarily a response to your letters. I said, it doesn't matter. I don't need a response. It's not the purpose. And when I look back at that time, I realized that I had done several of the elements of Worthington's REACH model, which I really find interesting. Um, I, you know, when I looked through uh, Worthington's model, I found that very interesting when I look back. The reason I share this story with you is that for six years, my ill feelings toward two persons only hurt myself. Do you think either of those two people lost any sleep over me? No way. People, the inability or unwillingness to forgive can be crippling. Take it from me. If there's someone in your life you haven't forgiven or hold grudges against, Take a moment and examine the self-harm that might be taking place. And this includes self-forgiveness. The unwillingness to forgive oneself from harm to others can keep you imprisoned from the outside world and vulnerable to addictions. If Jesus has forgiven you, what authority do you have to withhold forgiveness from yourself? At the very least, speak to a counselor or pastor, to get yourself started on the path to personal freedom. Thank you for listening.
Thank you, Kevin, for sharing your story with us. It's so good to hear it enfleshed with someone who's walking through it, who has walked through it. And it's the invitation for all of us to release people and thereby release ourselves to be forgiving so that we can be free. So the question is how? How do you do that? Well, Paul really nicely tells us at the tail end of that verse, verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How, Paul? As God in Christ forgave you. It's always very frustrating to me when I'm reading the scriptures, I see a direct admonition, go do this, and the way you do it is, you know, be like God. <laughs> that, that seems tough to me. Like, I feel like I'm a long way from there. How, how do I step into that? Well, if our desire and the call of the gospel is to imitate Jesus, we will always be frustrated. You will not be able to imitate the forgiving, the forgiving love of God. But if the call of the gospel is to be transformed by that love, which it is, then we become forgiving people. Here's what I mean. Paul, or Peter, writing to scattered Christians, says to them, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's this uh, supernatural reality of Christ coming to indwell us that comes through that process of being forgiven. When we're forgiven, it's not just that our sins are canceled. Jesus himself comes to indwell us through the presence of the Holy Spirit and begins to change us. Our hearts of stone, the prophet says, become like hearts of flesh. So how do we forgive? As God in Christ forgave us, as he begins to shape our hearts and change us. That's not just an interpersonal thing. That's a societal thing. That's the way that we make an impact on the world around us. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made this statement. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate. Adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The invitation of Jesus is not to fight the, the offenses against us in like form, but rather in the midst of a dark world to become the light of Christ, to live as the light of Christ. And so that starts through, it can only start through receiving forgiveness ourselves, being willing to forgive others and to accept the forgiveness of God. To recognize that if the God of the universe declares that we are forgiven, for us to hold on to our sin puts us as God above him. And so while it's not always easy to forgive yourself, it's a process of agreeing with God about what he's already said about us. But it doesn't end just with us. The circles begin to expand out. We live in forgiving ways with other people who we're in relationship with, but we also expand it out from there, live in a way that changes the society around us. The church should be known for kindness. That seems simple. 
but countercultural. We should be loving and forgiving and passing on grace because we have received that grace. The heart of this series, yes, is to deal with past offenses, of course. The heart of this series is absolutely for us to be forgiving people in specific instances. But the heart of this series is also to recognize we live in a culture that's incredibly divided and needs the gospel of Jesus to be uniting. And we are called to be those people. So as we get to the end of the series, I want to leave you with a story. Um, I, I told you a couple weeks ago that I was coaching a, uh, a speech and debate tournament when there was an, an offense that was there and it was one that I just could easily pass over. But that process of that tournament um, was one where uh, Ethan, who is a part of our, our speech and debate team, uh, qualified several different speeches into the national tournament and one of those speeches happened to be on forgiveness, interestingly. And so the story that uh, Ethan will tell, I, I think, can provide a bit of a framework as we wrap up this series. Um, as he comes, let me just give you a little uh, uh, insight into the category he's competing in, because it may feel a little bit odd. Um, his category is to take three distinct pieces of literature and weave them together around one theme. And he's only allowed to use a binder and the contents of his binder. So if it looks weird that he's using his binder as a prop, it's because that's all he's allowed to use in his speech. But, but I want you to listen to the, the heart of the speech and allow this to become kind of a capstone to the series that we've been on. Good? Yeah. Broken by Ethan Cannell. God... I am broken. Like a machine lying open, wires frayed, circuit boards in the disarray, my cold heart of steel displayed for all to see. I am empty. I filled myself with everything, the good, the great, the bad, the downright ugly, and still I'm empty. Everything I used to fill me left me empty, empty. God, I want to turn to you, but I keep turning away. Is there any way to find my way back to the way? Because I don't know the way. I don't know how you loved this, forgave this, died for this, yet you died for this. There seems to be some catch, some trade to persuade you to do what you did. God, help me to believe. Believe the unbelievable, believe the unbearable, that you love this catastrophe of a person called me. Help me to know that I am your child and that that alone bridges the miles that separate us. Help me to remember that you love me. Forgive. Forgive is defined by dictionary.com as, quote, to grant pardon, end quote. It seems like such a simple concept, but really it means so much more than its three-word definition. The idea of forgiveness is laced throughout the stories of scripture and Jesus' final act of love, his death on the cross, pardoned or forgave our sin. As said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are forgiven and free. 
But even after we are forgiven, we get overwhelmed by our guilt, drowned by our shame, and suppressed by our sin. We keep coming back empty to be filled until we wonder if Jesus really has enough grace for us. He said to forgive seven times, 70 times, but what if we outsin the 490? Lisa and her younger brother Brent, after hearing it in Sunday school, put this parable to a real-life test and found that true forgiveness knows no numbers. Tell Me the Promises by Johnny Erickson Tata. I sat on the floor of my old room, staring at the box that lay in front of me. It was an old shoebox that I decorated to become a memory box years before. Its edges were worn and taped to keep the shape. It had been years since I last opened this box. The sudden move to Boston had kept me from packing it. But still, one by one, I remembered the items in the box until I came to the last and only painful memory. I knew it well. It was a single sheet of paper in which lines had been drawn to form boxes, 490 of them to be exact. And on each box there was a check mark, one, one for each time. How many times must I forgive my brother? My Sunday school teacher read Jesus' surprise response to the entire class. Matthew 18, 21 through 33. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Jesus replied, truly I say to you, not seven times, but seven times, 70 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Upon settlement, he brought a man before him who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. When this man could not repay his debt, the king ordered that his wife, his children, and everything he owed be sold to pay off the debt. At this, the man fell to his knees and said, please have mercy on me. I will pay it back. And the king had mercy, released his debt, and set him free. But when that man went out, he found his fellow servant who owed him just a hundred silver coins. And the man began to choke him, saying, pay me back what you owe. The servant fell to his knees and said, please have, have mercy on me. I, I will pay it back. But the servant refused and had him thrown into prison until he paid back all that he owed. When his fellow servants saw this, they were furious. So they went and told their master all that had happened. The master brought the servant before him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you because you begged me. Shouldn't you have the same mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? In his anger, the master had the man thrown into prison and tortured until he paid back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. How many times is seven times 70? Um, 490, I think, Lisa. Brent, my younger brother, he is small for his age and his 
hair was matted in swirls around his head. His glasses were too large for his face. He bordered on being a nerd, but his incredible skills at everything, especially music, made him popular with his classmates. His music teacher said he'd be a famous musician someday. At age four, he learned to play piano and clarinet at age six. It was that night I made the chart with the 490 boxes. You see, right now, every time I mess up and you forgive me, I can put a check in the box like this. Lisa, I, I really don't think you need to do that. Yes, I do. You're always forgiving me, Brent. Just, just let me keep track. In the years that followed, there were plenty of opportunities to fill up the boxes. It's a teasing at the time I cheated on his test, when I stole his keys and crashed his car. On box number 490, we had a special ceremony. See, Brent? That's it. No mistakes for me anymore. <laughs> yeah, right, Lisa. That is funny. Number 491 was just another one of my careless mistakes. Brent had received the opportunity of a lifetime. After four years at a prestigious music school, he had the chance to try out for New York City's great orchestra. 2.30 on the 10th. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember that. A week later, I realized my mistake. So, Brent, when did you say you were trying out? I don't know yet. They're supposed to call. Oh, no. Um, Brent, Brent, what day is it? It's the 12th. Why? No. Oh, uh, it was two days ago, Brent. 2.30. The, the call came last week. Lisa, is this one of your jokes? Brent, please, just, just listen to me. I'd ruined Brent's life. He could never forgive me for that. I packed my pickup truck in the middle of the night and I left a note behind. Two days later, I got a job in Boston and I found an apartment not too far from the restaurant. One day, I, I even saw someone that I knew. Oh, Mrs. Lipbaum. Oh, my goodness, Lisa. It's so good to see you. I was so sorry to hear about your brother. Such a terrible car accident. We can be thankful that he died quickly, though. He didn't feel any pain. No! Now I'm at home, back in my room, looking into that box, peering inside. It was exactly as I'd remembered, except one thing. Brent's chart, it, it wasn't there. In its place was a letter. Dear Lisa, it was you who kept count, not me. But if you're stubborn enough to keep track, use the new chart I've made for you. Love, Brent. 
In its place was a chart just like the ones we made as kids, but on this one, the lines were drawn with perfect precision, and there was just one check mark in the upper left-hand corner, and across the entire page were the words number 491, forgiven forever. Forgiveness has its only source in the love of Jesus. When we receive the love of Jesus, we are able to forgive others. And that forgiveness knows no bounds. There's no number, there's no limit, there's no offense that's too great. Jesus has received in his body, in his life, the perfect sacrifice once for all, the just for the unjust. The great offense of the cross means that there is no offense that's too great for us. And so throughout history, the church has come back to that reality. And we've come back to that reality at the communion table with the tangible experiential reminder, the body of Jesus is broken for you. The blood of Jesus shed for you. Your sins are forgiven. Your life has been atoned for. And so as we wrap up this series, I want us to wrap up by coming to the communion table, by remembering once again that forgiveness isn't about trying harder. It's not about gritting our teeth. It's not about being willing to overlook offenses. It's about receiving what Jesus has already done for us. And as we do, his love begins to change us and flow through us to the world.